Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Go get yourself a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. And remember to spell out other people the traditional way. O-T-H-E-R-P-E-O-P-L-E. Did I spell that right? Audibletrial.com slash other people. There's over 150,000 titles to choose from. And you can listen to these audiobooks on your iPhone, your iPad, your Android, your Kindle, your MP3 player, whatever device you have. And I want to say Infinite Jest is available as an audiobook. I want to say somebody tweeted me that. Was that a joke? I need to go look this up. Apparently, it's it's a really good reading. So if you have 150 hours to kill, go get Infinite Jest on the house at audibletrial.com slash other people. These are audiobooks. You can listen to them. Go and get one. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is where your brain is. This is where my brain was. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles, and it's uh, nice to be with you. My guest today is Miranda Beverly Whitmore. Her new novel, Bittersweet, is available now from Crown. It is the official June selection of the TNB Book Club, and uh, it also happens to be a New York Times bestseller. Uh, I think there's a corollary between those two circumstances. I have to believe that. TheNervousBreakdown.com, for those of you not in the know, is my online culture magazine and literary community. Uh, the site has its own book club, and you can join it. I hope you'll consider doing that. I pick the books every month along with my colleague Jonathan Evison, and then the books get delivered to your door. That's the way that it works. Every 30 days, you get a book. Better yet, all the book club authors are interviewed right here on this program, so uh, you can read the book, you listen to the interview, or vice versa, and uh, it's a very pleasant an enriching experience. If you would like to join the TNB book club, just go to the nervousbreakdown.com, click on book club in the menu bar and off you go. So Miranda and I are going to be talking in just a minute. First though, uh, I wanted to go over something that's been on my mind lately. Uh, if you've been listening to the program in recent days, you've probably heard me talking about it either in the monologue or in my conversations with guests. I think I might even talk about it with Miranda. I've been talking about it with everybody I know or don't know. 
It's just been in the air around my head lately. And uh, this week I read some stuff, you know, in the in a magazine and in the newspaper that brought it into relief, into high relief, and it got me thinking about it again. And so I thought I would uh, try to, you know, expand a little bit and maybe clarify my feelings uh, or perhaps muddle them irreparably for your benefit. So uh, I was reading in Vanity Fair this week, there was an article or the new, you know, Van, you know Vanity Fair, I think it's the July edition. There was an article by, uh, I believe it's Evgenia Peretz. I think that's her name. I think she wrote it. It's about Donna Tartt and uh, the Goldfinch, her Pulitzer Prize winning novel, huge success, big bestseller. And it's about the critical backlash among like the really uh, upper echelon critics and how there's kind of a push against the novel, uh, like some pushback against the success that it's had and the awards that it's won, people who think that it's not as good as it's cracked up to be. And then within within that article, uh, you know, the author, the journalist tells a story, uh, you know, kind of a parallel story from the past where Tom Wolfe's novel, A Man in Full, comes out. And uh, all these uh, big shot authors, John Updike, Norman Mailer, John Irving, essentially take turns just beating the shit out of it. And so like Updike in his New Yorker review uh, said that, quote, it still amounts to entertainment, not literature, even literature in modest aspirant form. Uh, Norman Mailer compared reading the novel to having sex with a 300 pound woman. Uh, Quote, once she gets on top, it's all over. Fall in love or be asphyxiated. And then John Irving said that reading the book was like reading a bad newspaper or a bad piece in a magazine. It makes you wince. Uh, He then added that uh, on any given page out of a Wolf novel, he could, quote, read a sentence that would make him gag. And then Wolf, of course, strikes back. He calls these, he says that these guys are having a tantrum and that they're scared of him and that, you know, they all like the lead dog is always trying, you know, people are always trying to bite the lead dog in the ass. And it's just this huge dick swinging competition. I mean, what else do you call it? And I found myself reading that and just feeling uh, depressed on a lot of levels and just sort of turned off. It's just an eye rolling situation. And uh, I'll, I'll expand a little bit more after I get to the next thing um, that got me thinking along these lines, which was a review in the New York Times of the new novel, The Last Magazine by the late Michael Hastings. Uh, Dwight Garner reviewed it in the uh, Times this week. And Michael Hastings, for those of you who don't know, he was like the Rolling Stone journalist who got Stanley McChrystal fired, the general over in Afghanistan. And then he died uh, about a year ago in a, in a one-car accident right here in L.A. So tragic loss, and this novel was pub- uh, published posthumously. And in the review of the book, you know, the book once again is called The Last Magazine, and it's essentially a send-up of Newsweek magazine, which is where Michael Hastings began his career as an intern And uh, there are characters in the novel who are modeled on uh, Newsweek's two top editors, Fareed Zakaria and John Meacham. And uh, I guess back in those days, those two guys uh, were the two top dogs and they were kind of fighting for control of the magazine. And so in the novel, um, you know, they're painted in a really unflattering light. And, you know, they're always like, uh, like uh, how does Hastings characterize them? They're obsessed with being on television they're preening when one of their cover stories doesn't get the cover of the, or one of, when one of their stories doesn't get the cover of the magazine. Uh, I believe the Zakaria character calls it bad for the country and it's, you know, it's a tragedy and all this kind of stuff. So it's, you know, it's just in both cases, what I'm getting at is that you have, uh, portraits 
of very successful people and very successful men exclusively in these particular instances who, to my eye, are just behaving badly and just unnecessarily, especially in the case of Updike, Mailer, and Irving. Like, why? Why do you care that much that you'd go out and try to just destroy this guy's book when you're millionaires and you're hugely successful and very good at what you do? And I mean, I guess what's the answer? They're trying to protect the canon and the integrity of the art by not letting what they perceive to be a subpar book find its way into uh, respectability or, or quote unquote immortality. I don't know. And so what makes me worried is a, I don't care this much (laughs) about anything and would never do anything like that. It would never even occur to me to get that wound up about somebody publishing a novel. Uh, I'm a, I'm squarely in the Kurt Vonnegut camp on this. Anybody who, uh, you know, seriously attacks a, a work of fiction is like a person who dresses up in a suit of armor and tries to attack a hot fudge Sunday. I think that was it. And, you know, I understand wanting to protect the integrity of the art, but I don't know. These people sort of appoint themselves as gatekeepers and arbiters of what is great. It's all subjective. And, uh, so yeah, it worries me that I don't, like, I think to myself, I don't even have this in me. Never even would occur to me to give a shit that much <laughs> or to get all, all angry about it. And then secondly, you know, you have to worry about, uh, the concept of success and what it would take to ascend and to be at the top of your profession in any profession. Is this how you have to be? Do you have to be a preening egomaniac? Do you have to be obsessed with being on television? Do you have to have enemies? Do you have to cultivate enemies? Do you have to take public shots at other people? Do you have to infight? Do you have to be political? It can seem that way. And it scares me because, uh, that's not what I aspire to. And I'm not holier than thou. You know, I have my faults. I have my ego, but the thing about me is that I don't want it. (laughs) I'm actively fighting to, to, um, subvert it. That's what I thought the game was supposed to be about, right? Not let it run amok. But it almost seems like you get rewarded when you do that. Do you see what I'm saying? Am I making any sense? Or am I, am I naive? Is is everybody out there just like, dude, this is the way the world works. You didn't know this. I can have that fear. Like I'm the last person to know that happens to me sometimes. So that's been on my brain. And I'm trying to like resolve that particular mental tension to untangle that knot and to figure out a way forward that, you know, allows me to continue to try to do well. Cause you know, I want to succeed. I want to do well. Everybody does. I want to make money. I want good reviews. I want to create things that people like and that critics like be fun to win the Pulitzer prize. I take a push card prize at this point. You know what I'm saying? So it's trying to, to find a way forward that makes sense to me on that side of things, the side of ambition or whatever you want to call it. And then the side of me that's like, uh, I'm going to die. So are you. Everyone is. How do I be a good person before that happens? How do I make sure I don't screw things up too badly for myself or for people that I care about or for people broadly speaking before I go? Do you know what I'm saying? How do you reconcile those two things? That's my problem this week. 
Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest, once again, is Miranda Beverly Whitmore. Her New York Times bestselling novel, Bittersweet, is available now in hardcover from Crown. Uh, such a great pleasure to have her here and to feature this novel in the, T in the TNB book club. I know you're going to like uh, the conversation we had. It's a really good one. And uh, here she is. This is Miranda Beverly Whitmore, and her new novel is called Bittersweet. So right now I am in my bedroom, actually, sitting on a big my big bed, looking out um, my two windows at um, what are trees, and on the other side of it um, are Manhattan in Brooklyn. So I'm, I actually used to be able to see the Twin Towers from my bed. So you can imagine kind of, um, it's a big sky, Brooklyn, with a water tower that my son and I call the rocket ship. Wow. A view of Manhattan. A view of Manhattan. Well, I'm not actually, I can't actually see Manhattan now because there are a lot of trees in the way. But oh. if the, when the leaves are off the trees, I can see Manhattan. This nature is obscuring my view of, of a concrete <laughs> jungle. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, I love this. We've lived in this house now for 15 years. We're, we're renters. We moved here right out of college, my then-boyfriend, now husband, and I. Um, and uh, it really feels like we're in a treehouse. We're way up in the top story of a brownstone. We have the top two stories. So uh, in, what part of Brooklyn? In Prospect Heights. Okay. Um, in, a, in a neighborhood that we would never be able to afford move to at this point time, time timing is everything in. timing is everything in real estate right timing is everything so we're diehard renters in this beautiful home and um you know now it's when the summer comes and the leaves come on both in the front and the back it's just gloriously it's just kind of sky and trees which feels like a miracle oh my in God. New York. okay yeah everyone's gonna yeah. want to come over now it just feels lovely <laughs> I so I feel very lucky. Yeah, well, we had no idea what we were getting when we were, you know, idiot twenty-year-olds. Wow. Who, you know, rented this place. That's awesome. That's a good story. Usually, yeah. I usually hear the opposite when it comes to like renting and real estate. But every, I know. every once in a while, people walk into something lucky. It's good that you know it. The problem is though that we can't leave. We can't like leaving this apartment equals leaving New York forever, because we can never have the quality of life. <laughs> We have in this apartment anywhere. I mean, we can't afford to live in New York. Well, now, don't you know? well, hey, listen. Don't, so, so, don't sell yourself short. But bittersweet is a New York <laughs> Times bestseller. Anything could happen. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, but congratulations on the success of the novel. 
Thank you so much. It's been pretty cool. I want to. I'm not uh, gonna lie. I want to take. I want to take a full credit for the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Clearly, yeah, was behind you should. This. You definitely should. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> but that's really exciting. Do you have any idea why it happened? Like, can you point to two or three big things, like press wise yeah. or review wise, and say, "Oh, I guess this is how a, a New York Times bestseller happens," or do you think it was just this organic word of mouth process? I mean, I think. Look, I think word of mouth starts in-house. And so way, way, way a year ago, when I first sold Bittersweet, part of the, my, the, my editor, Christine, who acquired me, who's, the, who's a young editor, she just was promoted to full editor, but at the time, she was an associate editor. She, had, she was one, she was like the 12th editor to read this book. And she was really the only full-on bite we got. And basically, it took her about three weeks to get enough support in house to buy it and the last people who she got support from were the sub rights people, which are not people you think about when you're trying to sell a book to a publishing house. But they're essentially the people who sell the, the books to foreign countries. And those people said, We can definitely sell this book. And I think that that was kind of like the final nail in the coffin that allowed Crown to, to buy my book. And then those sub rights people turned out to be right. They within like I think six weeks sold the book to six foreign countries and like doubled back the advance they paid to me. So that really changed the conversation within Crown because suddenly the book had already made back, you know, twice as much as what they paid to me, what they put out on it. And that, you know, um, so suddenly, suddenly suddenly you're a Christine, your associate editor is looking like a genius. Exactly. And so suddenly, and they've made, you know, good money. And so then they can in turn turn around. And so then that kind of made notice happen in house. And then that, that group of people, you know, within crown got really enthusiastic about the book. And so I think that was like the first big thing to happen. And, and, you know, I think that probably meant that more money ended up going into my marketing campaign. I think it ended up meaning that that's how I ended up with the managing director of publicity as my publicist who has a lot of experience and it's really passionate um, and, and so the next big thing that kind of happened, which we knew we, you know, the, you think, you think as a writer, of course, that your publicist is going to court someone to write a, a review and then they're going to say, we're going to write your review and then they do write the review and then you're happy. But of course it's much more complicated than that. So like we knew that there was, that entertainment weekly was really enthusiastic about the book and we knew that. People Magazine was really enthusiastic about the book, but we had no idea um, that they would both write these huge raves as kind of, you know, in People Magazine, it was like their lead review on the Friday before my the Tuesday that my book came out. So those two raves came out on that Friday, and over the weekend, we saw our numbers just, like, plummet on Amazon, which is a good thing. It sounds like a bad thing, but, um, you know, and, of course, Amazon is, like, not a great... Um, scientific indicator of how your book is selling, but it's a good kind of canary in the coal mine. Um, so, so wait, so let me stop you. You, you saw your, your your actual ranking on Amazon go down? Yeah, I mean, it went down closer to number one. You oh, know? Okay, so like, okay. I thought you meant like a sudden, right? <laughs> I thought I thought you were going to say like, no, that meant that everybody was actually running to bricks and mortar bookstores. And I was like, hooray. Like, what? No, this... <laughs> well, God, I mean, God. So, yeah, so we saw that happening, and then it meant that going into the first week of sales, we had, you know, we had a ton more pre-orders than just my enthusiastic fan base, which is very small from my first two books. 
I, you know, it's full of people who love me, um, which is great, you know, but this was like the first time that that book kind of like did its own thing. Um, and so it meant that that first week, you know, the way that they count your first week of sales is at the first actual week and then all the pre-orders. So that's how we ended up, I think, on the bestseller list that first week. And then it stayed on the bestseller list for two more weeks, which is just amazing. And we, none of us were expecting, um, but I think that, you know, um, what I'm really loving about it, because of course my second book came out in 2007, my first book came out in 2005, and with both of those books, social media just didn't really exist. Um, and one of the things that's really been crazy about this process for me this time around is just connecting with readers and librarians, like directly on Twitter, um, and seeing all of these book bloggers who, you know, passionately fall in love with a book, and then they tell you about it, and they review it, and they have, you know, a handful of people who then go and do the same. So it's been really interesting for me to be really watching also how then, once you get kind of that boost, I think that kind of viral stuff happens where word of mouth spreads. Um, it's been really cool and crazy. I was going to, okay, so yeah, take me through, um, like, the the emotional process of seeing that spike after those raves come out in People Magazine and Entertainment Weekly because I got to imagine when there's that kind of um, action around a book, yeah. I mean, A, you're excited you're excited anyway just because the book is making its way out into the world. That's a big moment for any author regardless of which book it is in your career, first or 50th. Yeah, absolutely. But, but then to see these raves come in from, you know, these print publications that actually have, um, uh, you know, significant uh, readership. Like, you know, that there aren't that many of them anymore, but people in Entertainment Weekly have millions of people reading them. And so yeah. they can make an impact. I mean, were you just a, a ball of adrenaline? I, I mean, I was really – I was really – Oddly calm, you know, I think you think in these moments, you're like, oh, my God, I'm going to go crazy. And then what actually is happening, I was kind of like, okay, this is this is good news. I'm really pleased, you know, and, and everyone around me, my husband, my sister, my parents kept being like, are you going crazy? And I kept saying, like, I am. I'm really thrilled. But, you know, I also think that this is such a universal truth is that it's so hard to write a book. And... um this is the fifth book I've written. It's the third book I've published. And every book has been just as hard to write. And so in some ways it feels like what's happening with this book should be what happens with every book that anyone ever writes <laughs> right. because it's so hard, you know? Um, and so to have that feeling happen finally with the book is a miracle. It's, and I don't take it for granted, certainly not, but there's also a, an element of like, okay, yeah, I wrote a book. I worked really hard on it. A lot of other people worked really hard on it too, and now people want to read it. That's great, right? You know, and you're also like, um, you're also like, you know, I basically have PTSD after writing this book. I don't have enough energy to like get super <laughs> excited. I'm too stunned. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Too, I'm too, I'm too shell shocked and stunned. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah, and it's really. I mean, so it's been really moving to see how how enthusiastic everyone is and also really amazing for me to feel like, you know, in that first week of sales, I sold three times as many books of Bittersweet as I've ever sold of my second novel, Set Me Free, <laughs> in its entirety. And that was like what, book scan? You're just tracking the book scan numbers? Yeah, that was like, you know, around 9,000. Okay, but how are you tracking it? Like, does your publisher have access to those numbers? Yeah, my, yeah, yeah, my publisher's like giving me, giving me numbers-ish, but, you know, that doesn't track indie sales. It's all we get. 
I mean, and this is what's funny is that even talking to like your publicist or your editor, those people are kind of like, we don't really know, you know, <laughs> um, we, we don't really have a, a sense of how many numbers are being, you know, are, of this book are being sold because there's so many different um, equations that go into it. And, you know, there's stores order, but they don't, but they can return the books. So, you know, I think from author's perspective, it feels like it must be scientific, but I can say that from the perspective of now having kind of been through this experience, it's even the people who seem like they should know, don't know. Yeah. Um, which is both reassuring and also terrifying, you know? <laughs> right. um, <laughs> your, your book could have sold a million copies last week. No one would have any idea, it seems. <laughs> but what about, uh, what, so yeah, what about ebooks? Like, do you have a sense of how big of a, sh- a market share you're getting there? Like, I guess it differs. Yeah, I mean, what's, what's really exciting for me is that the book, the three weeks the book spent on the bestseller list, it was on the hardcover list, which felt to me like really exciting that, that hardcover books are being being bought, you know, and that a book that has this kind of, I mean, they put a beautiful package on it. They've really made it a lovely book. It's shiny. It has this beautiful cover. Um, it's got, you know, deco edges. There's beautiful font inside, you know, as a, as a writer to have your book feel physically that beautiful is just so exciting. And so it's really cool to me that people are wanting to buy the book physically. At the same time, I think people are also buying it in plenty a plenty of, of ebooks and it is like a, it's a literary beach read. So the whole, the point, the hope is that there will be people who are Kindle and, you know, ebook obsessed who will want to buy it like that and consume it in that way. And then I've had other people say, you know, man, I love, I've loved reading this book. Um, and I've really tried to slow it down. You know, I really tried to read, you know, only a few minutes every night so that I could have it last like a week. So I, it's also fun to see it kind of appealing to different kinds of readers, well, I wanna, um, which I wanna, I'd always imagine. Well, I, I want to interrupt you because uh, I was uh, talking to my dad on Father's Day, and mm-hmm. he is a member of the of the book club, and he reads every oh, cool. he reads every TNB book club book. He's like really good about it, and he's like, "This is one of my favorites. I just really enjoy this." So you know, <laughs> you, oh, I you, love that. Yeah, you scored with, scored with my old man, and I wanted to. Uh, I actually want to backtrack a little bit. Uh-huh. You know, because I think this is of interest to me, and I think it's of interest to the people listening. Uh, and it's just, it's just, it's fascinating to think about how a book succeeds. And you talked about, uh, you know, the foreign rights selling, and how that was kind of the, the first canary in the coal mine, or, or what really gave the yeah. book early an early boost in house and set it on its course to having a good ride in terms of its publication. And I'm wondering if you've given any thought to why, like you know, these people in the subrights department. At Crown, um, I got that right, right? I just, yeah. Okay, yeah. So the people in the subrights department at Crown, like they, uh, they look at this and they say, "We can sell this." Why? Yeah. What is it? Like, you know, is it is it because like I'm thinking maybe like because it tells a story of like corrupted wealth in America or something that maybe like foreign readers might like that <laughs> because it might confirm some you know something about the, their view of America. Quite accurate. I think that's quite accurate. I mean, I also think that you know, look, all like I, I so after my second book came out and did really poorly, I tried to sell two other books and I couldn't. And so, like my first four books, two of which have been published, were very were, had this kind of um, mystery question in them, but it was more like. Um, a literary mystery question. I had really kind of uh, honed my my that part of me that kind of loves 
love that um, suspenseful feeling to really write a more literary novel. And and when I couldn't sell, you know, the fourth book I had written, and I really was facing kind of what felt like a crisis to me, I, I had lunch with my former editor, the, the first editor who had acquired me for the effects of light, my first novel. Um, and I asked him, like, what should I what should I do? And he not, you know, not not, you know, not unfacetiously said you should write a bestseller. Um, and I think at that point <laughs> in my life, I was so desperate that instead of being like, through you, that's a mean thing to say. <laughs> I really thought like, okay, you know what? I'm going to think about this advice. You know, what is this advice really mean? And it means that when it means that I have to write what I need to write. Like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit down and make up a story that I think is a bestseller story. But it means that if I'm choosing between three different ideas for a book, I'm gonna choose the one that seems like it's maybe more mainstream. Okay. Um, and I'm gonna make a choice, you know, to not write a literary book. And so I think that thinking for me I mean, I'm not saying that I made it happen, but I definitely think that on the writing end of things, I made a choice to write a book that I thought I could sell. And that didn't mean that it was easy to do that, but I definitely think that it meant that, that I wasn't coming up against a kind of a subject matter problem, which I had with my first number of books. Okay. That's an, this is interesting. This is an interesting territory to get into because, you know, you hear things, uh, and I get what you're saying, but you also hear things where people say, you know, never try to write for the market because you'll just screw, your, you know, just screw yourself up. That's a maddening task, you know, and, and maybe a fool's yeah. errand to be like, all right, I'm going to try to land on the bestseller list. But I, I, I think what you're saying is that like, you know, when you're sitting down to make creative choices, um, you know, a, you're trying to, to think in terms of appeal, you know, something that's going to have broader appeal, which I think is something that can be discerned without, Cor corrupting the process too much. And then, you know, th this book is uh, more page turnery, for lack of a better mm -hmm. adjective. And so, you know, from a creative process standpoint, when you're sitting down to write, you're making plot choices. Like, what was the difference for you in, in the actual day-to-day -day grind of writing the thing, you know, between Bittersweet and then maybe the previous books? Like, was there a big difference? Did you do different it things? Was, I mean, honestly, it was a lot more fun. <laughs> I had a lot more fun writing it, which was kind of a surprise because I felt at first like, okay, I'm doing this thing that I'm worried, am I selling out or am I I'm making choices exactly what you said that are that are, you know, a fool's errand. Um, but then there was a, such an opening of liberation for me to allow myself to realize that like writing a book that had this kind of big plot that was really written for a reader's pleasure was pleasurable for myself. Um, and, and I didn't, I hadn't, I hadn't been in touch with that <laughs> and I didn't get my MFA. So I, you know, a lot of, a lot of my journey as a writer has been really kind of feeling, beating my own way through the brush. So it felt kind of like I came to a meadow, you know, with a beautiful view. And I thought like, Oh, I can just, I can just really love this. Um, and I can maybe, I can maybe make some choices about this that are for now that are for my, you know, for my career, and I think that also there there was another end of it, which is I I love the honor and the the bravery of knowing that you can that you want to be doing other work too that can pay your rent. You know, I think that people who can teach are incredible, <laughs> and uh, who then that allows them a kind of liberation with their writing because they're not making choices 
about, um, about, you know, they're not having to think at all about the market share when they're, when they're writing. Right. Um, and I really, I'm not a teacher, you know, that's, I, I have taught and it, it, it's not something that I can do as while I'm writing. Um, and so I really was facing down some, some serious realities, which was like, I had a kid, my husband was supporting us. We live in the most expensive city in the country. Um, I was really having to ask myself big questions like, do I really, you know, is this selfish I'm <laughs> to dude, be trying to I, do this? I was, I was just, I just said, dude, I'm, I'm so right there with you. And like <laughs> everything you're saying registers. And I, I mean, I get, I think there's a totally a place in the world. And I think you, you would agree that a place in the world for like edgy literary fiction, that's difficult totally. and doesn't, mis- yeah. doesn't even try for like a mass audience. But um, I also think there's really something to the idea uh, of making sure it's a, a joy for the reader, you know, like like rem- yeah. like remembering the reader as opposed to just being like, oh, this is a way for me to um, exercise my demons or this is a way for me to work through some particularly difficult period of my life or this is a way for me to uh, engage in some sort of really difficult mental exercise or, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. I think, it, and, and it seems so elemental, but it's so easy to lose sight of. And then, you know, there's also the, uh, the quandary of, is this selfish? And I think it's been a huge problem for me. And I imagine uh, there are others out there who share it, uh, especially when you have a kid and uh, yeah. even in marriage, yeah. I mean, but I, you know, whenever you right. have a relationship or, uh, dependence, you know, and you're looking at the, what it, what it takes to be a creative person in terms of time, uh, the risk involved, uh, it, how do you, you know, it's hard not to feel like a jerk sometimes, or at least to entertain the notion that like, I am a monster for, for doing this. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I think that, you know, we were really like, we've been really in a financial, you know, we've been paying for, for prepay and we've been, you know, paying what is, an amazing rent for this neighborhood, but is an obscene amount of money, you know, and we pay our health insurance out of pocket. And my husband's a massage therapist, you know, it's like, you know, we have been really living in a kind of hand to mouth way. And so it was really for me. And actually my goal with Bittersweet, which has happened now was to be, was to be able to just sell another book. You know, I was like, anything else that happens on top of that is fabulous and I'm thrilled and like the New York Times with list is beyond my wildest imaginings but honestly what happened when you know before my book came out a couple days before my book came out they you know crowned out my next book and that was like oh (laughs) I have a little job security you know for a little more time I have some job security and I you know it's funny how how that next phase of your life you know really really changes the feeling about the work yeah. Um, well, that's great. And, and, you know, when you were sitting down to, to work on bittersweet and you had this, you know, this notion that you, and you were taking the advice of your, uh, your first editor that you needed to maybe focus more on, uh, mass appeal or try to write a bestseller, yeah. you know, whatever you want to phrase it. Uh, did you, as part of your strategy, did you model other books? Like, did you have a, like a handful of books that you were looking at and saying, okay, these books have succeeded at what I'm trying to I, do? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I thought about the books that I love, that I'm that I have like an addictive feeling about. That every time I think about them, I'm like, oh my god, that book. Um, and I read so on that list were was the Secret History, and um, the Emperor's Children, and the Line of Beauty. Um, and what I realized when I started to think of, and you know, Gatsby, 
Um, and when I realized, when I started to think about those books that they all held in common, was that they were all about young people who kind of fall in love with this inner group. And there's usually like one person who they kind of fall in love with who who um, is the kind of gateway into that group. So with the exception of Secret History and The Great Gatsby, you know, sometimes it's about friends and sometimes it's about someone else's family. Um, but I thought like, wow, that's such a compelling story. And, and all of those books are about young men. Um, and I thought like, I, I want to write a book that's that story, but that's about women. about Because I think the girlhood friendship at the center of the story is um, such a such an amped up version of what so many young women experience. Well, I was going to say, cause you, you started a blog about this, right? I mean, like there's a, yeah. there's something to yeah, that. There's, there's, yeah. there's something about young women friendships that are particularly intense. Like adolescent girl friendships are hardcore. Yeah. And what was really crazy about this book is when I started to, to talk about it and I started, you know, even with people inside crown, um, even, you know, women I've met since who have worked on the book in various ways, they almost always start to tell me about some crazy friendship that they had in, like, fourth grade, you know, <laughs> where they're like, oh, my God, this book made me think of Jessica so-and-so. <laughs> she and I live down the street from each other. And, you know, and people will tell me these amazing stories that are, like, so dark and wonderful and so much about, like, that particular time in your life when you're trying to figure out who you are and, like, who you want to love, and um, I think for many young women, those those friendships are uh, like a practice for the love affairs they're going to have in their life, um, and in some ways, so much more impassioned even. Um, well, that's a, that's an so, interesting point, like that these uh, those intense girl friendships in high school or junior high or whatever are like a rehearsal for later intimacy with yeah. a man uh, or, or a woman. I think they really are. Yeah, uh-huh. I think they really are. I think a lot of girls kind of practice on each other, like cruelty and what love is and how you, you know, how you treat you. It's just, there's just this kind of deep, um, drive to do that. Okay. So what about um, you? What about you? You got a, you got a good story from your youth. Did you, were you modeling, <laughs> were you modeling anything from your, your childhood for this book? Well, I moved around a lot. I moved around constantly. And so I, um, I had a lot of best friends. Um, and, um, I really wanted to kind of figure out for me because I never had, I never had one enduring best friend throughout my childhood um, because I, you know, I lost track of people as we moved on in our lives. And so I, I feel like um, no one is, you know, Ev is not uh, anybody. She's not a composite of anyone who was ever my best friend, but there's certainly things that she's done that she does that, um, you know, I either can imagine having had done to me or can imagine having done to someone else. You know, I think there's also this amazing thing about childhood girlhood friendships where there's also this kind of, the the realm of the imagination is still quite strong, right? There's this still amazing part of the mind that is, um, that still exists in a land of make-believe, kind of. And Mabel, the main character of Bittersweet, is very much, she very much has that still. She still has this kind of um, playfulness. And I think it's part of why she falls in love with Winlock, the place that have families from, because it's like a fairy tale. You know, it's like, um, and so I, I also wanted to play with that idea of like, what is it to be a girl becoming a woman who still is like in that realm of playing? Um, 
And there's a way in which Ab, even though she's much more sophisticated than Mabel, is also in that realm too. Like they play house together, they kind of have this this safe domestic life that they both know isn't gonna isn't gonna exist beyond the summer, and yet it, it's intoxicating to them. There's something really. I mean, I was thinking about this uh, uh, like outside of the context of this conversation and this book and everything, but I was just the other day it, mm-hmm. pa- it passed through my head like how intoxicating the summers of youth are. Like I just, oh my God, I, just I, had, I just had one of those like sudden, like really full sensory overload memories of like being young and like what summer was like and like the smell, yeah. the smell of cut grass and all that kind of stuff. I just, you know? I just finished reading the interesting last night. Have you read that by Meg Wallister? No, no. It's all, oh, it's really powerful. It's all about this group of friends from summer camp who grows up and it follows their lives as they, you know, until through their 50s, but they meet when they're like 15 and it's this intoxicating summer love. They're all in love with each other in this way that you can only be at the age of 15 with people who you wouldn't necessarily ever want to be friends with. <laughs> and then you're stuck with them for your life. Yeah. And I had a summer camp. I went to my whole, my whole childhood that was an intoxicating place too. I just had these like deep friend love affairs and with people I'm still, you know, I'm still in touch with. Um, and, it it is there is there's nothing that touches that feeling right and and what what was the summer camp where was it um in Oregon so when I was uh my dad was a college is an anthropologist and also a college professor and so um we moved around a lot um and finally we moved to Oregon kind of for the last part of my childhood to so move there when I was like nine um and so I started going to the summer camp the summer I was ten. And I taught there. I, I went there, and then I taught there until I was, like, 22. Um, so it was, like, every summer. It was a day camp, but it was six weeks long, and it was the same core group of people. Um, and we did Shakespeare. You know, I was really a drama nerd, so, like, that was what I what I mostly did was was this was this, in, was this in Eugene? <laughs> it was in Portland, outside of Portland, in, oh, okay. a, in a place called Wallaton. It's a, a camp called Willowbrook that still exists, wow. um, and it's... Yeah, and it's really, uh, it's a thriving summer camp that still does Shakespeare. I mean, it was, for me, it was amazing because it was like the place that I learned about how language could work. And um, the woman who started the camp, really, Althea, really felt that um, there was nothing that kids couldn't do unless you told them they couldn't do it. So we would, you know, in a week we would put on like, you know, Shakespeare plays. <laughs> that's so. That's they were, a, that seems so Oregon. That seems so like. It is so Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> it's very Oregon in the nine in the mid nineties. <laughs> that's good though, and I feel in like the that, early 90s, that, yeah. that's almost like like Valhalla because I mean Oregon's sort of hip now, and I feel like Portland is um, like aware of itself way more than it used to be because yeah. it's become like this kind of destination of like hipsterism or whatever, but I know, back, I know back, it was really back, a nerdy place to grow up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you know, beautiful place too. And I think in the summers, oh, summer, summers, summers, especially just gorgeous. Yeah. I'm actually really excited because I'm going to be, I'm going, we're going out there in, in about a week. Um, so I just can't wait to be out there again in the summer. It's going to be so beautiful. So, okay. And so all this moving around, obviously there's, I mean, I, I moved around a little bit, maybe not as much as you, but I, I talked to a lot of writers and I think I've heard that many times. That seems to be yeah. some, something of a commonality among writerly people. Um, like Definitely. were you like a, a writer from a young age? It sounds like it. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. My mom's a writer and my mom had come out of a, um, like a very, she went to Goddard College and she studied with Toby Wolf and Ray Carver and, um, you know, and kind of had this this drive to do that. And but she was writing as a woman in a very different generation. Um, 
so like she tells a story about you know she wrote her first novel when she was like 23 and she sent it to FSG and she got a personal letter back from Roger Strauss that said you know we love your book so much but um we're already publishing a woman this year so uh she kind of decided early on that she would write but she wouldn't pursue publishing so I grew up with a mother who was always writing um but didn't think about the business end, end of it at all um and so I think that really got me thinking about, um, A, what it would be to be a writer, but B, also wanting to complete the process, you know, to kind of feel like, okay, well, what would it be like to actually write something and then, and then pursue that in the world? Um, and also, you know, my family's, you know, I'm named Miranda after Miranda and the Tempest, so we're a big language family. You know, there was always language and, and you know, stories and um and then we lived for three years in West Africa when my dad was doing field research there. So that was a different kind of storytelling and a rich, rich, rich part of my kind of fabric of my childhood that How old were you? Informed. Um, I was three and then we left when I was six. Oh, so wow. I remember a huge amount. Yeah. Yeah. And we so lived in a very what, rural village. Oh in where? Just you say West Africa, but what country? In, yeah, in Senegal. Oh, in Senegal. Wow. Yeah. So that really changed the story for me, too, because we came back to the States when I was six and moved to rural Vermont. And it was a horrible, horrible um, re-entry for me. You know, it was not, we suddenly lived in like a, you know, a house on the end of a dirt road with nobody around. I had to go to school and I had to wear snow pants. (laughs) It was not pretty. And I had a, my parents had a baby, you know, I had been an only child up until that point. The whole thing was just kind of like, are you kidding me? Right. Um, and I think well, at that you, point, you're, you're, I, your mom's not having another baby in Senegal. I'm imagining back in those days. <laughs> yep, she's exactly. Like, she's like, no thanks. I'll go back. I'll go back to Vermont yeah. to have this kid. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But um, but I think that that for me kind of then became an internalized moment where I started to think more about, you know, um, I think that was really the moment when I became a real kind of participant observer, as my dad would call it, as an anthropologist. This idea of kind of knowing that I was both of the world and not of the world that I was in, wherever I was. Um, so this kind of sense, I think Rachel Cantor talked about this a little bit when you interviewed her, um, but this idea that I kind of could participate, but I could also be watching myself participate. Right. Um, and I, I, that is definitely, you know, a primary trait of any writer. Well, um, and I should say, too, I mean, I think like, like children who move around a lot, children of academics... Um, I think often become, you know, I have like a, a writerly bent or even like some built in advantages because academics tend to be brainy and bookish and that's a good example. Right. But then, uh, yeah. I've, I've always felt like anthropology as, um, a, a discipline has a nice symbiosis with writing. You know, it's like, if you're going to totally. get, your, if you're going to get your undergraduate education and you don't know what to do, it's like, do I get a degree in English? Do I, you know? I think anthropology is a great, like, base education for any writer. So I'm imagining you you picked up some stuff from your dad. Yeah, definitely. And and also, you know, I was kind of helping. I mean, I thought of it when I was, you know, three. His field work was how how older children care for younger children. So I was definitely a a large part of his (laughs) field work because I was kind of, you know, the, the conduit. You know, I was the one who would be like, hey, there's a dance going on tomorrow night, you know, and he would you know, end up going to the dance. So in many ways, I remember feeling like I was really part of his 
you know, not, not, not even that I believed that I was being observed, but that I believed that I was vital to the field work that he was doing. Um, so that's really interesting because I think that from the very early age, I had the sense that I was, I, I was, I was someone who was watching, you know, right. and kind of taking, taking in what was going on and trying to make meaning of it. Okay. So, um, I want to ask, I mean, speaking of like participant observing and also, um, you know, stuff that we've talked about earlier in the conversation, uh, I'm interested in talking with you about, uh, the, the, the class theme that's at work, mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, I feel like just to go, to go to Brooklyn and this view of Manhattan, yeah. I'm picturing like the, and you said that you used to be able to see the trade center. So now you can see. Uh, the gleaming towers of the financial district. You live exactly uh, in a neighborhood that you would be priced out of if you tried to move into it today. Uh, I think, yeah. I mean, writers are especially up against it because financially it's, it tends to be really difficult. But I think, you know, more broadly speaking, a lot of people feel that way. Uh, and if you talk about narratives where you have this kind of outsider infiltrating a group, uh, you know, you spoke about the secret history and Gatsby, you know, books where yeah. class is definitely a theme. I mean, is this something that's on your mind? Is this something that you're like observing in your day-to-day -day life in New York where you have uh, this view of Manhattan and, you know, this <laughs> kind of disparate uh, set of circumstances for people uh, in high relief? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, how can you not, right, living in this country right now? I mean, I think you have to be kind of, um, you have to be willful about it, about not seeing it if you're not. If well, you're living in this country. <laughs> well, I would say, I would say especially in in a in a big city because yeah, I, I feel exactly. like I I can feel like in some suburbs or certain places, um, you know, that are that are more removed. Like there are pockets of the country where equality is is more of a thing, and I think yeah. But if yeah. you're you know like I mean there are like homeless people on the corner of where I live, and right. there are people who are driving around in Mercedes Benzes and. It's bananas. And I also, I mean, I think it's also something you really notice when you, you start to have, a, when you have a kid who starts to notice things too, right? You know, like, it's really interesting to be living in New York with a child who's now five and realizing that he's already figuring out how, what to filter in and what to filter out, you know? Um, and one of the things that I love about raising my kids in the city is that he, it, it's never once occurred to him that somebody who's different from him or me has any less right to be here than we do. You know, right. um, he does there's this like, that's not even equality is not even a conversation in this city because everybody belongs here. Um, and I love that. And everybody gets to love who they love. And there's, there's nothing that's, you know, that's, but, but within that, of course, there are homeless people on the corner, and you figure out, how do I talk to my five-year-old about that when yeah. they ask me about, why does that guy always ask for money? Is he scary? You know, right. uh, is he our friend? Um, and so, I yes, I think the class part of that is is huge. And I also, on the other end of it, I you know, living in the city, you also have a clear sense of how much some people have, you know, and how... Um, you know, in the literary world, you'll end up at a party at someone's house and you're just like, wow. <laughs> or even being a mom in Brooklyn, you end up at someone's apartment and you think like, you guys, you, you own this. Oh, wow, you own this. <laughs> right. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, ever go you know? home, but do you ever go home feeling like a failure? Like, fuck, these, I'm way behind. Or it's hard not to like. Well, to we, had this, we had this really big joke because for years our apartment is, 
you know, is really beautiful and it's like two stories of brownstone. And so for years with our kind of like before we had kids friends, we always felt like we had the like really nice big apartment. And then I had a baby and I started hanging out with the moms in this neighborhood (laughs) and made really good friends with a lot of them. And suddenly we were like the bohemians, you know, we had like the, People were like, oh, your apartment, it's so, it's so sweet. I love how you've decorated it with, like, the teak, you know, cloth on the wall. That's wonderful, you know. And we, so we, we just always no, <laughs> I was gonna, up about that. I was going to say, we literally have never had any of the parents from our kids' school over to our place. Literally, never. <laughs> like, we're not, we're not well, even going there. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. I mean, because we really is, like, we, you know, we do have, I guess, a very bohemian existence. Um, but, but, you know, but it, so I, I guess the other end of it, too, is that, like, the Winslows of his family are obscenely wealthy. In the, and yet in, they in have, the Winslows are the, are the rich family in Bittersweet. Yes, are the rich family in Bittersweet. Um, they're, but they have the kind of wealth that a lot of people I, I've met, you know, in my life in this city and elsewhere have, which is they don't think that they're that wealthy. You know, they're, they, they, for them, money is a lubricant to kind of get whatever they want. And so it's like they would never call themselves rich well, because that's not even like a, an interesting, you know, they don't ever think about it. Well, yeah, yeah. No, and it's interesting to, it's an interesting point because the, there was this recent thing in the news where Hillary Clinton sort of stepped in it uh, rhetorically where she talked about like when they left the White House in the late 90s, they were dead broke and, you know, just like a right. really, just like a really tone deaf, stupid thing to say that like made me yeah. like roll my eyes or whatever. But uh, I was either watching the news or listening to something, and you know, on the radio, and it was like, you know, if you think about who they hang out with, you know, uh, yeah. all, all those big donors, they probably do feel poor. It's all relative. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's yeah. all relative. But it's. Still I mean, a- yes, and like, and my, you know, our life in Brooklyn is incredibly well-heeled compared to most of the world, you know? I mean, I, I, like, it's, it's interesting, though, whenever I feel like, oh, man, like, I can't believe that house we went to and the food they served and the wine they drank and, you know, their fancy pillows and there was, did you see that chandelier that was from Milan? You know, I mean, all things like that. And then I come back to my life and I'm like, yeah, but I have hot water, you know? And I think there's something really amazing about having grown up in, um, in a rural place with no running water and, you know, no electricity is that, um, you mean in Senegal? Yeah. Living that life in Senegal as a child, I definitely have an understanding that I could live like that again if I needed to, you know, I don't, uh, like that this life is much more convenient and it's the life I choose. But that if, you know, if I had to move back to a rural Senegalese village and live that way, that, you know, I can make it work. Think about how much writing you could get done. You don't even, you know. <laughs> yeah, in between all of the, all of the, you know, rice patty field working and. Yeah, I was going to say trip, trip, and... trip, trips to the river to like do laundry or whatever. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> uh, so, okay. So you grew up in uh, Portland. Like that was where the bulk of your childhood or, like, yeah. you know, the, the most, the meaty part, the adolescent part of it like happened. Exactly. Uh, and then where did you, uh, did you go, where did you go off to school after that? I went to Vassar, just north of of Manhattan, actually, um, in Poughkeepsie. And um, I thought, you know, I never thought I would be a New Yorker. And then I fell in love with someone. I actually, the first day of my freshman year of college, I sat next to the man who I have now been with for 19 years. No kidding. <laughs> okay. So yeah. Wait, let's, let's, let's 
let's uh, zero in on this. You're at school, first day. First day. And so when you go to college, I think, and I speak, I'm speaking in the, is it the Royal U? I'm speaking when anyone goes to college. <laughs> first day of college, everyone's like, okay, like if it's a girl who's into guys, she's like, where is he? And if it's a guy who's into girls, he's like, where is she? Everyone's like, and you actually fell in love on the first day. I actually, well, I didn't fall in love on the first day. It took us till April. But yes, we sat next to each other and we became friendly and we lived in the same dorm. And, uh, you know, we kind of struck up a, struck up a friendship and then, but of, you know, in a way that, that college works, I think we both kind of were like, you know, oh, well, this isn't going to happen now. And then, I mean, and also poor man, he went to Vassar where the, like the straight man to, you know, to straight woman ratio is like one to 10. So he could have really, he could have, if he hadn't. If he hadn't, you know, buckled down with me, he really could have scored a lot. I was going to say, it's a gold mine. <laughs> it's a gold mine at that school. Um, and so, but then we finally, kind of in April, we got together. And I mean, and we've been together ever since. Wow. That's a good story. I love so, stories yeah. like that. So, and, and did you get a good education? Were you, and were you, were you starting to zero in on being a writer at that point? I did. Yeah. I kind of gone to school with the intention of being, of being in theater, I really, Pastor had a great theater program, and I really thought I wanted to do that. And then I just realized, for all sorts of reasons, as I was there, that it just wasn't, it wasn't, it was something that I loved in high school, but it wasn't something that I wanted to pursue. Um, and so I started to look elsewhere, and I thought, you know, I realized I really wanted to do some creative writing. And so then I actually wrote, for my senior thesis, I was in this creative um, class called um, Senior Comp, which is like... Um, you can write a creative thesis instead of a critical thesis in the English department. And so I wrote my my first book, which has not been published, called The Telling, which is a novel in verse set in Senegal in a small village that my family lived in. Um, and that kind of, for me, unleashed the realization that this is what I really wanted to do with my life. Mm. Um, and did you come up really with... Oh, and I was going to say when you got into Vassar, because that might be like an introduction coming from Oregon uh, and then suddenly you're at Vassar, which is kind of a bastion of privilege, you know, in terms of uh, yeah, academia. Yeah. Like, did you come up against that when you were there? Were you like, was that sort of an awakening for you or like uh, you were? Well, kind of. Yeah. I mean, and that's definitely like that is Mabel's story is she's from Oregon and she goes to a place that is I don't never call it Vassar in the book, but there are you know people who've gone to Vassar are like, oh, I know exactly where those places are that you're talking about. Um, so she, definitely that's her experience. And for me, it wasn't quite as extreme, but it was definitely the first time that I was around New York money in that way, and that I was around that kind of New York sophistication. Like I was not. I mean, I was cool in, like, a nerdy theater kid cool way. But, you know, these were, like, gorgeous women. You know, I was, like, a girl still. These were, like, gorgeous, willowy women who had, you know, had sex and gone to boarding school and, you know, done drugs and, you know, were, like, in my mind, were so sophisticated. So I definitely was kind of awestruck by that when I went there. Um, and, and many of them... If they didn't, if they didn't come for money, they did a good job of knowing all the right ways to make it seem like they had, yeah. you know. Um, and that was really—I just couldn't believe it that there were people who actually existed like that. Because you know, in Oregon, that I'd never seen that before. You're like, I can do hacky sack, like I. Uh... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I can recite. I can recite. Pop. 
monologue for you. <laughs> you know, it was kind of like what I brought to the table at so that point in my life. Were you able? <laughs> were you able to assimilate? Did you find yourself like trying to like like um, uh, take on any of those? Like, did you try to like blend in or become that at all? Like as a young person? I, you know, I I think not really. I think. I, I I fell in. I met, uh, m- you know, m- my husband David at the time. We became, you know, he and I became close even before we got together. And we had a, another friend who was very close to us, who was also from. She was from LA, um, and was kind of really into Victorian stuff and had like long hair and was very romantic. Um, and we kind of had this like, you know, triumvirate um, that kind of had you know other people around us that were kind of we were. You know, we took Latin together. It's so, it's <laughs> very, like it's very, very secret history. Yeah, kind of. I mean, it, I, I loved it. I mean, I loved, and I was so in love with the aesthetics of that place. Like, Faster is has all of these Gothic buildings, and it's, you know, it's got this beautiful um, residential quad, and the library is stunning. And, you know, for me, it felt like this kind of, it was like academia with a capital A, Um so I really loved that. And at the time, I, I think I thought, you know, before I really started writing there, I think I thought, like, maybe I'll be an academic like my dad. You know, maybe I'll pursue that. Um, but then I realized that I really didn't want to teach. Uh, and then I didn't also want to be, having seen how hard that lifestyle was on him and on our family, I realized I didn't really want to have the academic lifestyle. What, what, um, what, what was it? Like, yeah, what was it about academia that turned you off? really strange people in a very strange petri dish, you know, of like of their own kind of neuroses and jealousies. And um, I think very early on in my life, I identified that like that academics were not um, were not always very nice to each other. And I mean, you know, that's true in any field, but I think there's something particular about academia where you're stuck with these people that just felt incredibly uh, suffocating to me as I thought about my life. I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be in that kind of Petri dish. And, you know, especially in at, at the level of like the small liberal arts college, which is often in a small town. So you really like your social life with those people. Um, and I yeah, just thought sounds, that that was, hellish. <laughs> yeah. I just thought like, Oh, I don't want that. Yeah. You know, okay. I don't want that. All right. So, <laughs> so you get out of Vassar and you move to Brooklyn immediately. Uh, so I got out of Vassar, and I spent a year. I got an agent with my with the telling, and then it became very clear that we weren't going to work well together. But over the course of like those eight months that I worked with her, I really I revised the telling, and I realized that I really, um, you know, I really thought like maybe I really do want to do this. Um, and then and then we decided not to work together, and I was kind of devastated because I thought like this is it, my life is over. You know. I've, 21. <laughs> and, you know, he's like, oh, I, you know, well, there goes my chances of ever having the career that I could ever want to have. Um, and my husband, I'd been kind of staying in Connecticut with my parents who had, in the time I was at Vassar, had moved back east where my dad got a, tenure, a tenureship um, position. And so David was staying down in the city with his mom, and we kind of would go back and forth on weekends. We'd see each other every week or two. Um, and then it became clear that I really needed to, like, buckle down and get a job. So I got a job um, at the 92nd, 92nd Street Y at the Poetry Center, 
which runs like this amazing reading series here. Um, yeah, what is what like, is the Ninety Second Street Y? I've never been there. What like is it a YMCA? What is it? It's a, okay. So the Ninety Second Street Y is a fascinating, strange place. It is a YMYWHA, which is a young men, young women's Hebrew association. Huh. So it's actually it's actually one of the leading and oldest Jewish uh, institutions in this country, um, and but, you know, they changed their name now to the 92nd Street Y, and there, I think there are seven different centers within it. So they have, like, uh, you know, like a, a health, you know, a health and rocket club. They have, a like, a housing, you know, a, like a, a place where, like, students live, like a hospital. They have a preschool, but they also have um, places that people, you know, uh, Various speaker speakers come, and then one of their one of the seven um, sub sections is the Unterberg Poetry Center, which was founded I think a hundred years ago, and it's um, you know most every eminent American writer has appeared there yeah. over the course of, of time, and so um, it was really for me an amazing. Uh, I mean, I, I didn't get my MFA, but I think it's kind of like a practical MFA because I um, was, you know, every week I'd work backstage with the writers and I'd meet them. So I met all of these incredibly like amazing who? people. Like, like who? Philip Roth and Saul Bellow and Derek Walcott and Toni Morrison and um, John Irving and you got you know, any, people you got like any that. Sto- you got any stories? Anybody, was anybody difficult? Anybody hit Roy on you? Carol Oates. Oh, everyone's everyone's difficult. <laughs> really? No, I mean, my no, yeah, you know, I mean, it was. I have to say, I was surprised by how few of those reading, few of those people, uh, I felt a warmth towards after that experience. Okay, you so know? I want to stop you here, and I'm I'm going to do. I, you know, in fact, there might even be. Uh, because I haven't done the monologue for this episode yet, but uh, it might be the monologue for this episode because it's been bothering me so much. And by bothering, okay. by bothering, I mean I've just been fixated on it. But okay. I, I've read things recently. Uh, I was reading this thing about Donna Tartt and Vanity Fair recently. I don't know if you saw this, yeah. where it was like all this backlash against the book and its success. Yes, from... yes, yes. I totally read that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I read that, and then I read a review by uh, Dwight Garner in the New York Times of the new book by uh, the novel. Uh, that's posthumously, uh, posthumously published by Michael Hastings, where he's sending up Newsweek circa 2003. And okay. uh, I was talking to a friend about this yesterday, and it was like I read these things, and you read like the bad behavior. Like, I think when they were, t- you know, with respect to Donna Tartt, they were drawing a comparison um, between, uh, you know, the backlash against her and the backlash against Tom Wolfe, you know, from. Right. Yeah. I, I believe John Updike, John Irving, and Norman Mailer or something, they all came out and just attacked that book and attacked him in a really kind of ugly and, like, brutal way. And yeah. I'm reading this, and then in the Hastings book, it's like he's sending up John Meacham and Fareed Zakaria as these, like, hugely egomaniacal editors who are, like, desperate to be on television and are fighting for power. And I just find myself thinking, like, fuck, is this what it's like at the top? Like, is this what you got to be? You know, like... Yeah, well, I mean, and I think, you know, I think a lot of those writers, look, they're writers, and I think they're a different generation of writers, too, where for them, being a writer really meant writing. And there's something, you know, I'm not I'm not defending them, but I think that there's something really odd about, for, for many of those people of that generation, of having to then appear on stage in a way and kind of be, be present. I think that's now what we expect of our writers. 
coming in and we really, we really, maybe we filter out those people who aren't going to be good at that. Um, unfortunately, I think, but I do, but I did get the sense from a lot of those writers that as much as they respected the Poetry Center and wanted to be there, there was something fundamental about appearing in front of an audience and having to talk about their work or read from their work that often felt like they were over it. Yeah, no, and maybe I, that's not different from someone like Mick Jagger not wanting to play, you know, whatever hit for the eight billionth time, you know? Um, High-class I mean, problems. Of course, yeah, right. I mean, it is. But I think that there is something about about maybe at that point in your career, you're just kind of like, I'm over this. Well, you know? I, I get that. Like, I'm over doing readings, and I, I don't even get asked to do readings <laughs> very often. Like, <laughs> I can't stand readings. I think they're ridiculous. But I guess they're sort of like a necess- you know, necessity. Some people like yeah. them. Um, you know, I, I personally, I, I never say no because I don't feel like I'm in a position in my career to say no. I'm always right, like, right. someone's nice enough to ask me. I'm always going to say yes, but I always feel it makes me uptight. I get that. What I don't get yeah. is like not being kind. And especially if you've had the yeah. kind of, kind of success that these people have had, like, what the fuck do you care if Tom Wolf has a bestseller? You, you, you have millions of dollars. You're, you, everyone yeah. loves you. Like calm down and just be nice. Yeah, and, and that's why it was really – but I think that – I think maybe that's where true kindness is actually a rarity in anybody, you know? I mean, you know, Jose Saramago came off the stage, and he put his hand on my hand, and he was a really old man, and it was, you know, not very not very soon after that he passed away, and he gave me this genuine smile, and he said, thank you. You know, and all I had done is walk into the stage, and that – moment I will always remember because it was such a genuine moment of of kindness and warmth towards me where he was really saying like you're a human being and I'm a human being and you helped me right <laughs> get to where I needed to be but I think that a lot of those folks you know it's this weird kind of showbiz thing where I was also like the you know the, the PA yeah. you know I was supposed to get some water and kind of you know make sure you know make sure they were getting their you know out of the green room in time um and, and I, you know, I was also much younger, and I think I was probably more deferential than I would be now, you know? I think maybe if somebody treated me that way now, I'd like to believe that I would say, like, excuse me, <laughs> or something. I don't know. Right. But uh, but there's something also about that hierarchy. And so as a result, what you're saying, I definitely have noticed that it has, it has informed the little amount of kind of those few moments when I'm in front of an audience or when I'm dealing with somebody, you know, who's like the in-house, you know, the person who's like dealing at the bookstore with like where I'm going to stand and giving me instruction. But I always make a point to know their name. I always, you know, I always say thank you. I always make sure that, you know, they're happy because I feel like, you know, those jobs are really, are really intense and, you know, that they're really running the show. Well, and think about um, this, think about this, think about Saramago. And like one day down the road, uh, you know, you might not be here. I might not be here. Uh, but that person at the bookstore that you were nice to might have a podcast. <laughs> and right, right. Really, you know, she wasn't she wasn't an asshole. Like, how hard is it to just be decent? You know, and I know you can't. Yeah. I know sometimes, yeah. you know, everybody makes mistakes. Everybody. There's always there's such a thing as an oversight or being like tense right. before a public appearance and not maybe being as warm as you normally are because you're nervous or something. But. Um, I, I don't know. There's just like this question gnawing at me that like, do you need to be like a crazy egomaniac with like a deep mean streak in order to like get to the uh, top of a profession? Just, yeah. I mean, and your point is so well, I think you just, I mean, God, I've learned you just 
never know when someone's going to reappear. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, and self-servingly, that can mean you just never know when someone's going to reappear in a position of power. But right. beyond that, I feel like, especially these days with, like, social media being what it is, you just never know who knows people. You know, you never know. I mean, when I when I was teaching a little bit and adjuncting up at City College, one of the things that I would say to my students from the beginning, as I was like, please spell each other's names names right when you write on you know write critiques on each other's works. I know it sounds like duh, but you, there, some of you aren't going to spell each other's names right. And guess what? You notice if your name isn't spelled right, and you yeah. remember it. Yeah, there's something. You know, like that matters. That, yeah, there, there is something about that. Like at least spell my name right. You know, like get it right. I understand that. Yeah, and, yeah, and I there are little things like that that you know that I think are just super important if you're going to be in this job that you have to remember to, you know, to say thank you, to write thank you notes. Right. Uh, and it's, you know, it can feel so old fashioned and cloying, but I think it makes such a difference. I do too. I do too. And I don't think it's that hard. <laughs> I don't really don't think it's that hard to be, yeah. to, you know, to be just like have a basic level of, uh, you know, manners, have some manners. Yeah. And, have and also, manners. and if, you, if you're six, like, Okay, so I'll try to like finish my rant by like like seamlessly blending it into uh, a less hostile <laughs> line of conversation. <laughs> uh, but I think it's related, I, and I think it comes down to uh, success because you know most of us out here in writer land know how to handle failure. You know, we we get yeah. we, we get rejected a lot. The financial uh, upside is uh, not exactly stellar most of the time, even if you even yep. if you're succeeding and in, in getting published. So. We know all about how to handle that, uh, or at least we, we try to muscle our way through it. But now here you are after, um, you know, having your struggles and going through long years of apprenticeship and ups and downs and, and all the rest. And you have yourself a New York Times bestseller and you have a book uh, whose appeal is drawing comparisons to uh, novels like Gone Girl, which is like a moon, right. a, one of those moon rocket books that like, that you know, yeah. Jillian Flynn's going to live on for the rest of her life, probably. So. Let's say, like you know, like uh, should the the stars align, that happens for you. Like like bittersweet becomes this thing that is uh, over the course of its publication lifetime, like this massive success. You become a household name. Like have you? I'm sure you've had those dreams because we all do, and in some form when we're writing our books. Um, but have you given thought to how to handle success? I mean, I know we kind of just touched upon it, but is that something you've spent time on? Like if I ever make it, I'm going to do X, or you know. I mean, you know, I, I, I had kind of a, I had kind of a, a crisis of self kind of in this spring and like a year ago this spring, I, um, and I, I was just experiencing a lot of anxiety and feeling really sad. And I thought like, you know, what, how do I get out of this? And, um, someone really wise said to me, you need to just do, you need to just like be good. And what they meant by that was like, do the things that, that you love, be with the people you love and, and act with a kind of warmth and kindness in your life. And, and for me, that really required stripping things down to, to very simple things, you know, to knowing like, you know what, I need, I, I feel like I need to answer these 20 emails, but what I need to do more is just get into my bed and, and read a book with a cup of tea. And I'm going to feel like I'm a happier person and I'm going to be a better mom and I'm going to answer those emails in a better way tomorrow if I do that. And I think that that, I think that model works whether you're at the lowest of the low or at the top, the highest of the top, you know, I think, you know, I think 
It's Pri- about priorities, priorities. Finding your center, yeah, and knowing who you are. And that's part of why I'm happy that this quote-unquote success is happening to me when I'm almost 38, you know, because I was a kid. Because I've, I've learned enough about who I am to kind of know what those things are that center me, which I didn't know 10 years ago, you right. know. If someone had said, given me that advice 10 years ago, I would have been like, but, but, I, but, but what is that thing? I don't know what it is, you know. Um, and so I think the way to handle it is to be, to, to appreciate it and, and love it and enjoy it. And also to kind of say like, but that has nothing to do with me personally. You know, what matters, what, what has to do with me personally is like doing the things that, that make me me, which are, which is doing good work, loving my family, enjoying cooking, being a slob. You know, all the things that are kind of just like me, you know, um, that are never going to go away and and having and like solidly believing in those things as like as understanding that they're my my core. Um, And it's it's funny that you ask me that because that's something I thought a lot about in the last six months, um, which I hadn't before this moment in my life. Uh, And and I have to say, thinking about those things has really made my daily life a much more complete, happy place to be. Well, well, I think we'll leave it there. That seems like a good spot. And uh, it's certainly (laughs) been a great, uh, it's been a great pleasure talking with you. I'm really glad to, uh, you know, help give the book a push in the TMB book club. We're thrilled to feature it. And I just congratulate you on, on all the success and wish you well going forward. Oh, thank you so much, Brad. It was a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm so thrilled about it being in the Nervous Breakdown book club. It's just been wonderful to have that happen. So, Thanks a lot. Okay, guys, there you go. That is Miranda Beverly Whitmore. Her novel is called Bittersweet. It's out there now from Crown and Hardcover. You can find Miranda online at MirandaBW.com. That's MirandaBW.com. She's on Twitter. Her handle there is at MirandaBW. And she's also on Facebook and Pinterest. So go uh, track her down over there. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for all the good music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. And uh, don't forget to go with uh, the app the official app of this podcast. It's the best way to listen. Go get it. Download it. It's available wherever apps are available. You get the app, and then new episodes automatically uh, upload to the app. You don't have to do anything. It's an effortless situation. The latest episode will be there waiting for you on your device. And then you can also sign up for premium right there within the app and stream everything. You get access to the full archives every single episode, including conversations that I've had with authors like uh, Jess Walters, uh, George Saunders, Maria Semple, Tom Parada, Edward Dantica, David Shields, uh, Sheila Hetty, Tao Lin, Blake Butler, you name it. So go get the app. It's a good thing to do. Support the show. Thanks uh, for doing that. <laughs> I thought I had someone else to thank, but I don't. You know what I want to talk about? I want to talk about success and competition some more because I know you haven't heard enough on this from me. Let me just keep beating this dead horse. Let me just keep contemplating whether or not monstrous ego is a prerequisite to monstrous success. I mean, I know there are, here's the thing. I know there are some exceptions and that's what I have to remind myself somewhere in this world. There are people who do really, really, really well at what they do, who also happen to avoid uh, shit talking people in public in really nasty and egregious ways who fail with grace (laughs) you know what I'm saying? It just feels like the nasty stuff tends to get more ink in a secret way. 
I feel like uh, people and American people in particular, they sort of like that. They like their successes to be sort of uh, pompous and you know what I'm saying? It's like, we kind of, we kind of love that in a way, but there are a lot of good people in this world living in anonymity. And uh, it seems to me increasingly that the more happily anonymous a person is, the better the chances that they're decent and well-adjusted. That's my theory anyway, lately. Please remember that William Carlos Williams died after a series of strokes, that John Cheever died of cancer that spread from the kidney to the bone. That's it for now. Thanks again to Miranda Beverly Whitmore. Go get her book. And uh, thanks to you guys for listening as usual. I really appreciate it. And I'll be back on uh, Sunday with another episode. And then next week, uh, Wednesday, I'll be back from vacation. But you know, I don't even know why I keep telling you about my vacation because I haven't gone on vacation from the show. The show has continued on its regular schedule. So uh, it's not, it's not like I'm even on vacation as far as you're concerned, but as far as I'm concerned, I'm on vacation and clearly I'm concerned. (laughs) 